Hi, I'm Tom Biggs and you're listening to Beyond the Numbers. Thanks for tuning in to Beyond the Numbers. I'm Chris Thompson, and today I'm joined for our first episode by Tom Biggs. Tom is a manager in Weller's Oxford office, and he's also a CTA. That stands for Chartered Tax Advisor, which makes him well qualified for today's topic of discussion the tax changes and developments from the budget 2018. Philip Hammond was very upbeat, and on the face of it, there didn't seem to be a lot in his actual speech, which might explain all the jokes. Of course, the fine print afterwards can sometimes reveal a bit of political sleight of hand. Anyway, Tom has delved into this with his keen eye for details, and so, Tom, it's over to you. Where shall we start? Thanks, Chris. So uh, we're going to look at two um, sort of main uh, main areas from the budget, if you like. So the first um, area that we're going to look at is the impact for individuals. Um, then we'll move on to look at any tax changes relevant to uh, SMEs and owner-managed businesses. Um, and then finally, Chris, I think we're going to have a discussion on the uh, bigger picture of the budget. So um, there was obviously sort of uh, the sort of political aspects to, to think about, which um, we'll also have a discussion on um, and, and what that means for us moving forward. Brilliant. So uh, to begin with, let's um, let's start by looking at the, the impact for individuals and the changes that will be relevant to, um, to, to, to those people. So the, the, the first one that a lot of people have, will have seen from the budget is the Chancellor's announcement that the personal allowance is going to increase. Um, so this will increase from April 2019 to £12,500. Now currently in the 2018-19 uh, tax year, the personal allowance is £11,850. So we're, we're seeing a slight increase there. Um, the increase isn't overly surprising. Um, this was announced by uh, the Conservatives and the Chancellor a little while back. Um, what was a bit of a, a surprise is that this has been brought forward. Now, this was supposed to come into effect from April 2020, um, but Philip Hammond announced that um, due to sort of greater tax take, they're going to bring that forward. So the increased personal allowance will come into effect from April next year. Now, alongside that, what was also announced is that the basic rate band, which is the uh, the threshold by which you'll start to pay income tax at 40% rather than 20%, is going to also increase in April 2019 and this increase will be to £50,000 in total which is when you factor in the uh, the personal allowance as well. So what this means is that an individual can earn up to £50,000 from April 2019 and they will only pay 20% income tax which is a slight change from the current year. What this means broadly speaking is that for an individual earning £50,000 in the current tax year they'll pay income tax of £8,360, whereas uh, in the nineteen twenty tax year, they'll pay income tax of £7,500. So what they are benefiting from effectively is a £860 reduction in their income tax bill, which is obviously good news from a tax perspective. And just to be clear, that's from the 6th of April 2019. That's right, yes. yeah. So, so the tax years um, for individuals run from the 6th of April to the 5th of April each year. Um, so the when we refer to the 2019-20 tax year, that is from the 6th of April 2019 to the 5th of April 2020, which is when these new rates will come into force. So we're, we're talking about income from the 6th of April 2019 being subject to the higher personal allowance and the, the higher basic rate band. So as I say, that's, that's good news for individuals from a tax perspective. But is there also a little bit of a surprise in relation to this? Now, th th there was, Chris, actually, as, as, uh, as uh, you, you mentioned it. Class 1 primary national insurance contributions on earnings between what's called the primary earnings threshold 
and the upper earnings limit. Now, currently, the primary earnings threshold is £8,424 and the upper earnings limit is £86,384. So any income that falls within those two, those two thresholds is subject to national insurance at a rate of 12%. Now, any earnings above £46,384, which is the upper earnings limit, is subject to national insurance at a rate of 2%. So there's a bit of a fall away in terms of what national insurance is, uh, is paid on income above that level. So basically what you're saying is that there was a bit of a stealthy hike in the threshold at which national insurance contributions fall from 12% to 2%. That's right, yes. Yes, so the... Um, the primary earnings threshold in uh, from April 2019 will increase to £8,632 and the upper earnings limit will increase to £50,024. So, so what effectively has happened is that the gap between the primary earnings threshold and the upper earnings limit has increased. So effectively more of your income is being, going to be brought in and taxed, if you like, from a national insurance perspective at 12% as opposed to some of that being being subject to national insurance at 2%. So for, again, for an individual earning £50,000 in the next tax year, they will pay national insurance contributions, um, class one primary, this is, of £4,964. Uh, whereas in the current tax year, they will pay uh, national insurance contributions of £4,627. So, so we're looking at a, a net... Um, increase in the national insurance contributions of around £336. So although we've mentioned earlier on from a tax perspective, an individual on £50,000 would be £860 better off, from a national insurance perspective, they're going to be £336 worse off. So taking both of those into account, because both tax, um, to income tax and national insurance are both, both taxes in themselves. So if we look at those holistically, the net benefit is actually only £523 versus the uh, what was announced by the Chancellor's 860 Okay, so so on the day, yeah, there were all these proclamations about somebody on £50,000 being £860-odd better off. Actually, once you delve into it, they're only really about £523. That's, that's right, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so lots to take note of there. Uh, moving on, there have also been changes to entrepreneurs' relief. That's right, what yes. What nuggets do you have there, Tom? So, before we sort of dive into the, uh, the, the, the sort of changes that have come through, it's probably worth recapping what entrepreneurs' relief actually is. Exactly. So, um, entrepreneurs' relief is effectively a relief for capital gains tax, which individuals pay on, um, on any gains from the sale of capital assets. So this, this, when we talk about capital assets, what we're talking about are sort of high value items, so things like a house um, or, or shares in a company, for example. Now, with shares in a company in mind, where an individual has, um, has what's called his own personal business or company, you can claim entrepreneur's relief um, on the sale of that business or company. Um, and the benefit of that is that the, the gain is subject to 10% capital gains tax, whereas potentially on current rates, it could be subject to um, to, to 20%. So effectively, you're, you're benefiting from a 10% reduction in your capital gains tax. Now, when we talk about a personal, um, a personal business or a personal company, this effectively is... Um, is kind of a, a, a business which might be a sole trade or, or a partnership um, that sort of belongs to you. Um, or from a company perspective, it's a company where you own at least 5% of the shares. Now, there are other conditions that we'll, we'll move on to in a minute when we talk about 5% of the shares. Um, but that's kind of what we're looking at. And, and to add on to that, the company or business must be a trading company. So it must have an active trade as opposed to being something more passive like an investment company um, that sort of invest in shares or, or an investment uh, company in property, for example. So things like that, you, you won't benefit from an entrepreneur's relief on. Now, when I mentioned earlier on uh, about the, the 5% of the shares, now when we talk about um, having 5% of the shares, this uh, refers to 5% of the ordinary share capital of a company 
and also 5% of the voting rights associated with the ordinary share capital of the company. So you have to meet both conditions in order to uh, qualify for entrepreneur's relief when, we, when we're talking about shares in a company. And on top of that, based on the current conditions, the individual also has to be an employee or an office holder. So that can either be um, a sort of employee with an employment contract or it can be a director um, who isn't necessarily employing on the payroll, but that, that would still be deemed to be an office holder. Sure. Now, what was introduced in the budget was two additional conditions that now have to be met. So again, when we're talking about the 5% holding of, of shares, um, what the Chancellor announced was that in addition to the conditions we've just spoken about, the individual must also be entitled to 5% of the company's distributable profits and also they must have a right to at least 5% of the net assets of the company available to equity holders when the company is wound up. So what we've got is effectively two additional conditions that have to be met um, with regards to, uh, to, to shares in the company. Um, now, for, for the vast majority of owner-managers and, um, and SMEs, what we're anticipating is that these additional conditions will, will already be met. So it, it shouldn't provide um, too many obstacles, certainly for owner-managers, because we'd expect them to, to, within those shares, have at least 5% of the company's uh, profits and also 5% of the net assets on winding up. So who, Tom, is this most likely to impact? So the, the people most likely to, to, to suffer, if you like, from this introduction will be, um, will be individuals who have acquired shares in a company through, uh, through share schemes. So where, um, where a company's got share schemes in place, such as EMI schemes, for example, they might acquire shares in the company such that they have 5% of the ordinary share capital um, and that might well entitle them to 5% of the rights associated, the voting rights associated with those shares. And obviously they would also be an, an employee in their own right. However, what often happens with, um, with these type of shares that are required is that they are restricted in terms of some of their rights. So typically um, those shares will not carry a right to the net assets of the company when it's wound up. So because these additional conditions are being introduced, and I might have to add that they have to meet every single condition, i.e. all five, because these these shares that are required through the share schemes um, are such that they haven't got 5% of the net assets on winding up, that will therefore mean that they won't qualify for entrepreneur's relief. Now, previously, before these conditions were, were brought in, um, that wouldn't have been an issue because the individual, as I said earlier on, would be an employee. They've got 5% of the ordinary shares and they've got 5% of the voting rights. But because they haven't got 5% of the net assets when the company is wound up, um, that then sort of kicks them out of, of entrepreneurs' relief, if you like. So that might be a nasty kick for, for those individuals. And just to be clear, EMI stands for Enterprise Management yeah. Incentives. That's right. That's a share scheme that's used to retain and reward employees usually on some sort of future date or occasion be it like a, a sale of the company something like that that's right yes yes so, so there are certain conditions that you have to meet in order to be able to um to sort of set up an emi scheme but it's, it's typically like you've said chris to, to try and retain staff um with a view to them participating and growing uh, the business um, so they've kind of got a vested interest because the, the value of those shares will be dependent on the value of the company in the future. So they've kind of got a vested interest to, to sort of work hard, hang around, if you like, and, and sort of try and grow the business. So that is, um, that, that's kind of the, the rationale for those kind of schemes. Sure. And moving on from entrepreneur's relief, now landlords have potentially sort of suffered quite a bit in recent budgets there's certainly been a lot of tax changes that have impacted on them and there was more in this budget would you care to let us know more about that yeah so we might well touch on this later on but certainly it feels as though in in recent budgets there's been um a focus on uh on sort of discouraging if you like um investment in in property in the uk i guess with a view to to trying to um get more people on the housing ladder um, and first-time buyers so what the chancellor announced is that there will be some changes to um to what's called private residence relief now talking sort of generally here 
individuals who sell their house, either their sort of main residence, the house they live in, will not pay capital gains tax on the sale of that property. Um, now that is in contrast to, for example, if you have your own house and you've got a secondary house that is rented out, that secondary house would typically be subject to capital gains tax. So that's kind of the, the, the sort of bigger picture, if you like. So your own house you live in, typically you won't be paying capital gains tax. Now, whilst we, we, we sort of say that generically, there, there's a bit more to that. So there, there, what, what you have to do is look at the period of ownership and work out how long you lived in it. So, for example, you, there might be periods of ownership where um, you've been absent or you've lived elsewhere um, for, for various reasons. Now, within the tax legislation, there cer- certain um, periods of absence are, de- are what's called deemed occupation. So, for example, you can have three years of living um, living elsewhere for no reason whatsoever, and that would be classed as deemed occupation. If you're living away in job-related accommodation or you've had to move away for your job, um, that can be uh, often deemed as deemed occupation. And additionally, the final 18 months of ownership um, is is deemed occupation, whether you live there or not. So there's kind of a little bit more to it um, than than just a case of that's your main house and therefore it's not subject to capital gains tax. You kind of have to look, look around a little bit. Now... Where there's, uh, there's sort of periods of, of absence that isn't covered by some of those reliefs, either three years or the eight, final 18 months, there's an additional relief that, um, that, that can be claimed, which is, caught, which is sort of referred to as lettings relief. Now, this provides um, an additional £40,000 of, of gains tax-free where individuals let out their property that is or used to be their main residence. So... If for whatever reason you've got a period of absence that isn't covered by those reliefs and you let out the property, then potentially another £40,000 of gain that isn't covered by those could be covered by what's called lettings relief. So that's a kind of added bonus if you're letting out your property even though you don't live there. Um, Now, what the Chancellor announced is that um, there's going to be two changes to both the, the main residence relief and also to lettings relief. So... From April 2020, the final holding period, which is currently 18 months, is going to be reduced to nine months. Um, now, the, the rationale for this is that nine months is supposed to more accurately cover um, a, a sort of property transaction. So 18 months, from what I've read, is deemed to be sort of too long a period to just give as occupation for no reason, whereas nine months more accurately reflects the, the property transaction period. So potentially this could um, could bring more of the, your main residents into in, into charge, depending on whether you're living there or, or if you're absent. But nonetheless, it's it's coming down either way. Now, in addition to this, uh, lettings relief is going to be restricted. So where previously that forty thousand pounds of lettings relief was available if you let out the property and it used to be your main residence, or is your main residence. That is now going to be restricted such that that lettings relief is only available to individuals in shared occupancy with the tenant. So that was your main residence. You're now letting it out, but you're also a tenant within that property still. So effectively, you haven't you haven't moved out. You're living with the tenant in question. Sure. So a bit of a restriction there um, in terms of what, what can be claimed in the future. Yeah, and I have to say that there's been all sorts of... Um things in the press about uh, should people now start paying capital gains on their main residence Um, I know it's been debated a bit amongst the political parties and there's even talk of a land value tax uh, being mooted so it'd be interesting to see post Brexit and in future budgets whether one of the parties whoever is in power implements uh, any such schemes that, yeah, I think I think you're right, Chris. I mean, it, like, like we said, increasingly, there seems to be a focus from a from a political aspect to, to get more people into into housing. You know, first time buyers um, seems to be key, certainly for, for for both the Labour and the Conservatives. So, um, whilst we obviously can't predict what's going to happen in the future, I can't see um, the government easing off on on the sort of. Uh, the, the, the investors in property for the time being from a tax perspective sure there definitely seems to be an emphasis by using the tax scheme to shift people away from investing in property as landlords to try and free up the market for first time buyers anyway that's property it's a good section on there Tom thank you and then <clears throat> what we're then looking at is people who work as consultants 
contractors and freelancers. Now, those who've been doing that kind of work in the public sector will be well attuned to the current rules, but they're now being extended. Is that correct, Tom? IR35? That, that, that's right, Chris. Yeah, so, so this, um, this particular announcement hasn't come as a, as a major surprise to, to, to many working in the, um, the, the sort of tax profession. Now, IR35, um, which is what these rules are, are referred to as, are a set of anti-avoidance rules which aim to, to combat individuals that are, in all intents and purposes, um, an employee. However, their sort of employment contract, if you like, is, is such that they are set up through a company and therefore invoice um, their employer for the work and that that uh, the the work is then therefore sort of billed if you like through a, a company rather than it being taxed on the individual now the benefit of this historically is that from a tax perspective um, it offers a lot more flexibility and potentially more beneficial tax rates to uh, to, to get income through a company and then pay it out as dividends so that's interesting, Tom. What what is the chance target? What what is the chance of being targeting here in terms of what's what's the issue? So so the issue is that um, rather than um, so so I guess let's take a step back. If, as a as an an employee, um, you obviously undertake your your duties from your employment contract. Um, you go to work each day, etc. etc. Um, you're then paid for that work um, and that pay is subject to both income tax and also national insurance. Now, that is national insurance both from the employee's perspective and also the employer's perspective. So there's both class one primary and class one secondary national insurance that, that is payable on those earnings. Now, where the individual is set up for a company and effectively invoices the would-be employer through that company... Um, there, there isn't any um, any national insurance that's paid paid across. So the payment from the employer to the uh, let, let's call it the, the the personal service company, which is sometimes referred to as um, that amount, goes across without any tax being um, being withheld. So that that goes across gross. Um, then when it comes into the personal service company, that amount is then subject to corporation tax, which is um, based on current rates lower than income tax, and there's no national insurance paid. Um, certainly uh, not from the from the employer or the employee's perspective in that sense. Okay, so that's the benefit, and the feeling in the Treasury is that this is being abused somewhat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so. What what the um, what, what the government have said and um, potentially rightly so is that although the the arrangement is that you've got a personal service company actually in reality what you've got is a typical employment contract so for example the the per- the, the individual within that personal service company only works for the uh, would be employer um, all of the risks is carried by that would be employer. So, to all intents and purposes, you've got an employment contract. So, what? So, basically, they are—they have a personal service company, but it looks like an employee from the Treasury's perspective. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, with this, what you need to do is have a look at all of the facts to determine whether these whether these rules actually apply. So, you kind of look through the the, the, the personal service company and see if that if that personal service company wasn't there. Would that individual actually be an employee? Typically, you know, yeah. would there be an employment contract? So that's kind of what these rules are aiming to combat. And, and and the government have sort of taken a view that even if a personal service company arrangement is in place, that individual should still p- still pay tax and uh, national insurance as if they were an employee. So that's kind of why you need to look at the facts and, and determine if these if these rules apply. So. Those rules were brought in um, a little while back, and um, they've been most sort of prevalent, if you like, in the private sector. Uh, sorry, the the public sector, whereby the the responsibility for working out if these rules apply falls on the the would be employer, if you like. So, what was announced in the budget is that um, these these sort of rules would be extended to the private sector also. Um, so, what this effectively means is for large and medium sized businesses from April twenty twenty. 
um, the responsibility for working out if the IR35 rules apply will fall on them as opposed to on the on the personal service company or, or the individual. So it's just bringing these rules into line with um, how they've been implemented in the public sector already. And um, from what I've read, they've been implemented fairly successfully. Um, so the, the government is, is sort of fairly happy with how that's been implemented. So there's no real surprise that this has been extended to the private sector also. No doubt Chancellor Philip Hammond will um, look at this as a way of improving the tax take going forward. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, in, in theory, um, it, it, like I said earlier on, it's, um, it, it's an anti-avoidance measure. Um, so if, if these rules are implemented as the government intends them to be, then in theory it should up the tax take um, both from a, from a sort of income tax and a national insurance perspective. Okay, so we've covered the four main points impacting on individuals and we've now got another four significant areas of change for SME businesses. Starting off with the annual investment allowance, perhaps you can explain first what that is. So the, uh, the the annual investment allowance is uh, is an amount that a company can invest in uh, what we refer to as qualifying assets and obtain a 100% uh, corporation tax deduction um, or, or income tax deduction for sole traders um, for expenditure on those assets. So, and and what would be qualifying assets, please, Tom? Um, so to be to, to be brief, typically where we're referring to sort of capital allowances, we're talking about um, things like plant and machinery. Um, t- typically, any any sort of um, any capital assets that are, are movable. Typically, now there there are certain rules whereby um, where, whereby sort of integral features, if you like, so so uh, items that form part of a building do qualify for capital allowances. But but for this purpose. We'll just um, we'll just sort of refer to it as plant and machinery, typically. Um, so any sort of movable capital assets. And and what has the chancellor announced, please? So what he's announced is that um, from the first of January twenty nineteen, the annual investment allowance, um, which as I've just said, is the amount that you can fully write off against your tax bill for investment and capital assets, will increase to one million pounds per annum. So as a business, if you invest. Um, sort of a, a high amount up to a million pounds in capital assets you can write off that full amount against your corporation or income tax tax bill um, so this is an increase from the current rate of two hundred thousand pounds so it's quite a, a, a sort of generous offering from uh, from the chancellor um, now this will only be in effect for two years so this one million pound um allowance will only be up until the 31st of december 2020 so at that point Based on um, based on the sort of current guidance, it will then fall back to two hundred thousand pounds. Now, I know, particularly for SMEs, that you know investment and investment planning for a million pounds is probably going to form part of a like a five or even ten year plan. So, this really doesn't give them much time in in that sense, does it? It, it it doesn't to be honest, Chris. I mean, especially because it's being brought in on the first of January twenty nineteen. I mean, we're we're, we're sort of talking, um, you know, only sort of two months from now, really. Um, that 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 sort of small two year window is um, is going to come into force. So, I mean, there, there's an argument which I'm sure we'll we'll sort of touch on later on that you know perhaps um, perhaps this isn't as sort of generous as what it might look because it just doesn't give businesses enough time to plan. Um, for the increased sort of uh, the increased allowance, um, but having said that, if it is uh, if it is possible for businesses to bring forward their their investment plans, um, then certainly doing so would be would be beneficial because of this uh, this this increase in the in, in the annual investment allowance. Now, sort of again, taking a step back, whilst um, the annual investment allowance gives you a, a an immediate write off um, against tax for this investment. This doesn't mean that any investment above the annual investment allowance doesn't attract any any uh, sort of tax relief at all. So, any investment above that um, above that level will benefit from capital allowances, but at reduced rates. So, rather than having a sort of hundred percent write off, if you like, um, you get a, a sort of reduced rate 
on a reduced and balanced uh, basis, which is typically anything from 18% or down to 8%. So it's just a reduced rate that you'll get the, the tax relief and it'll take a, a sort of longer time period, if you like, to, to obtain that. So a really key point there for um, entrepreneurs, for owner managers is that, you know, yes, you've got the annual investment allowance. Once you've hit that limit, you know, there are still tax reliefs available in capital allowances from that point on. That's right, yes. From yeah. the one million point on. Yes, yeah, so, so so what sort of happens with capital assets is uh, obviously from an accounting perspective, they'll go onto your balance sheet um, and then you'll write them off uh, via depreciation over whichever, whichever sort of depreciation method and number of years you choose. Now, from a tax perspective, depreciation isn't an allowable expense, so that gets added back in the tax computation. And instead, what you get is is uh, this thing called capital allowances, which we just said are at prescribed rates. So all businesses across the board get the same rates of capital allowances, regardless of their depreciation policy. So it's it's supposed to kind of align everyone um, to get a sort of an average write down of the assets from a tax perspective, rather than relying on depreciation, which typically can be um, sort of you know selected and, and altered as the business sees fit. Okay, so that's that's the annual investment allowance. Now, as mentioned, for capital allowances, the the rates that you get writing down allowances are sort of prescribed um, at uh, currently at eighteen percent or eight percent, depending on the the assets in question. Now, what was announced as part of the budget is that for um, the special rate pool, which is typically for assets that um, have a longer useful life or integral features such as electrical works and cold water systems in a in a building um, this rate which is currently eight percent is going to reduce to six percent from april 2019 so what this means is that whilst you'll still get tax relief for um, investment in those kind of assets it will take a longer period for you to get full tax relief because you've gone from eight percent per year to six percent per year so it's a sort of reduction in 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 the rate by two percent, which would just mean that it takes a longer time period for you to obtain full tax relief for those assets. Now, whilst this is obviously um, you know sort of bad news if you like on on um, on the looks of things, what we would anticipate from a SME and um, owner managed business perspective is that this would only impact any assets that are, are sort of currently within the special rate pool and being written down. Um, because what we would expect is that because of the increase in the annual investment allowance to a million pounds, certainly over the next couple of years, is that um, investment in those kind of assets, you typically allocate the annual investment allowance against those assets first. So therefore, um, those assets would be fully written off via the annual investment allowance um, anyway. So it should only really um, sort of impact any any assets that are currently already within the special rate pool. Okay, and significantly for many owner managers there were changes in relation to research and development tax credits now many businesses quite often qualify for these tax credits but don't realize it um, but Tom what exactly what exactly did the chance the change here please so the the R&D tax regime is is an extremely beneficial tax relief for um for companies that qualify. So what um what the R&D tax regime uh, provides businesses is effectively an enhanced uh, tax deduction um on expenditure that qualifies for R&D. Now when we talk about qualifying for R&D what we're typically looking at here is um a company that are undertaking uh, activities that aim to resolve technological or scientific uncertainty. Now, to benefit from this, this is this is purely for for companies. So you have to be a company to benefit from R and D uh, tax relief. So there there are two there are two R and D schemes. So there's what's called the SME scheme, which is what we're going to be looking at here because of the the, the changes that the Chancellor announced, and also the large company scheme, um, which is also referred to as the RDEC uh, scheme. Now we're going to put the RDEC scheme aside. For now, um, the principles in terms of who qualifies for R and D are the same under both schemes, but the, the mechanisms of each scheme is, is slightly different. <clears throat> so, looking at the SME scheme, um, relief is given for uh, for qualifying R and D costs by giving a company an, an additional one hundred and thirty percent 
corporation tax deduction on that qualifying spend. So let's, for example, say you spend £100,000 uh, on qualifying uh, R&D costs. Um, you'll obviously get a reduction in your corporation tax computation for that £100,000. But then what you also get on top of that is, an, is another £130,000 um, deduction. So it's not it, it, you won't see that going through your accounts, but from a tax perspective, you'll get that deduction um, from your taxable profit. So, so it really is a generous, um, a, a sort of generous relief for, for companies that do qualify. Now, for loss-making companies, obviously the the extra deduction um, kind of won't really have much of a benefit on first sight because if you're loss-making, you don't pay any tax on on losses. Typically, you only pay tax on profit. So, if you've got another deduction. Um, on top of that loss, you, you're kind of not really seeing any any cash benefit because the, the tax that you're paying isn't changed because it's still zero. So under the SME scheme, what you can actually do is surrender um, surrender losses to HMRC. So you effectively give up those losses. You don't carry them forward in your computation and you don't use those against future tax profits. You surrender those to HMRC and what HMRC do is effectively pay you tax. So rather than you paying corporation tax to HMRC, Effectively, HMRC are paying you, so you receive a, a cash repayment from HMRC for those losses that you've surrendered. So, for for those loss-making companies that are undertaking R&D activities, they are actually getting a cash benefit because they're getting a, a repayment for the losses that they've surrendered. So, again, you know, good good news for loss-making companies, and the idea is that that then encourages and funds future um, research and development. So that's the kind of rationale for it. Now, what the Chancellor announced is that um, that moving forward, there will actually be a restriction in the uh, the, the credit that's, um, that loss-making SMEs can claim. So from April 2020, the amount of payable credit that a qualifying loss-making company can receive is going to be restricted to three times the company's total PAYE and NIC liability for the year. So what this means is that... Um, Whereas previously you could surrender as many losses as as you had and, and sort of you saw fit, if you like, for a tax credit, the amount that you can actually get repaid is now going to be restricted to three times the PAYE and NIC liability for the year. So where this is going to be a problem um, for for some companies is where they might employ a low number of um, of employees, um, so their their sort of PAYE and NIC liability for the year is going to be relatively low, but they undertake qualifying research and development activities that are typically outsourced. So, for example, where they um, where they uh, sort of contract subcontractors to undertake some of their R and D activity, um, which previously would have been fine for the repayable credit. Now, because they haven't got many employees in the UK. Um, they're going to be restricted in terms of the credit that they can uh, they can actually claim. So it's perfectly possible. For example, I could have a very early stage startup. Say it's just you and me in it. Maybe we subcontract some bits of work out in terms of research and development activity. And what we can claim in tax credits is vastly reduced compared to what we could prior to the changes because of our situation. Yeah, that's right, and that and and what's probably worth sort of highlighting here is that um, whilst the, the repayable tax credit is is restricted in this way, that doesn't mean that you lose out on the on the losses. So what instead will happen is <clears throat> rather than surrendering those losses for a repayment, you'll just carry those forward. So in the in the future event that hopefully that company is is profit making, those losses can then be. Uh, offset against the future profits and therefore reduce your corporation tax at a later rate so so whilst you know th- there is a restriction in terms of what you can actually receive now it's more of a cash um cash flow timing issue really because you're not getting the, the cash repayment up front by surrendering your losses you're going to have to wait um a, a, sort of potentially a few years in the future to offset those losses against future profits um so but but yeah no you're right chris if if you know if, if you've got a situation where you're you're kind of outsourcing a lot of your r&d activity and you you haven't got many employees and you are going to see a, a sort of a cash flow issue if you like and of course cash flow is quite often the big issue for early stage startup organizations yeah absolutely um and um you know what what we've sort of seen in um in practice is that quite a few companies uh starting out and, and undertaking this r&d um 
activity where typically there's not much sort of income, but there's an awful lot of outflows. Um, a lot of companies are actually sort of relying fairly heavily in some instances on on this sort of cash repayment from HMRC. So if it's then restricted, um, you know, potentially we could see some sort of bigger issues for some of these companies. Indeed, I think um, that was the big selling point of R&D, tax, re- tax credits or tax relief, was uh, the boost that it could potentially give to an organisation's cash flow. Anyway, moving from that onto the employment allowance, Tom, perhaps you could explain what that is and what's going on there. So the, the employment allowance was, um, was brought in in uh, April 2014. And what this gave, uh, gave employers was a £3,000 uh, tax credit, if you like, against um, the employer national insurance contributions that are payable by a company. So as we sort of touched on briefly earlier on, um, there are two types of national insurance. There are employer and employee uh, NIC liabilities. So what was introduced in April 2014 is is uh, what's what's called the employment allowance. Now this gave um, effectively £3,000 um, NIC free to companies who... Um, who typically employed more than more than one individual. So if um, if you've got a company where, um, let's say, for example, you've just got just one director um, who works for the company, that company wouldn't be eligible for the employment allowance. But if there was, say, two directors or a director plus another employee um, or a number of employees, that company would, um, would qualify for this £3,000. So, so what that means is that um, for the, the first £3,000 of employer national insurance contributions payable by the company, they wouldn't actually have to pay that amount over to HMRC because of this employment allowance. So the, the idea of this was to encourage um, companies and businesses to take on staff um, and therefore, if you like, from a bigger picture, sort of hopefully reduce the unemployment rate and create jobs. So it was certainly a, a, a sort of um, a, a real beneficial uh, introduction when it's uh, when it was brought in um, now what was announced in the budget is that from 2020 to 21 the employment allowance will actually be restricted um, to companies whose uh, employer national insurance contributions uh, liability for the year is below £100,000 now the the rationale for this is that they that they kind of feel as though for, for larger companies, so when we're talking about larger in this sense, we're talking about companies who have a NIC employer liability over £100,000, that £3,000 actually is kind of a, a more like a sort of dent in their in their bill. It's, it's not a real sort of benefit to those. So what the government have, have kind of felt is, is right is to restrict that to the smaller businesses who... Um, who, who will really see a benefit in that £3,000. Um, so I can see the rationale behind it, but that obviously means for those for those large companies, they're going to miss out on that £3,000 employment allowance. Um, in the bigger picture, is that going to make a, a, a real big difference to those companies taking on staff? Probably not. Um, but to the to the exchequer, it'll probably bring in, you know, additional tax take, um, which could be sort of used elsewhere, potentially. Okay, and then we mentioned earlier quite a bit capital gains but there are capital gains changes and implications for SME businesses what's going on there so what we should probably highlight before we start is that companies aren't subject to to capital gains tax now it's just individuals typically that are, are subject to capital gains tax now companies pay corporation tax on any capital gains that they make so th- there's there's a slight differentiation there that we kind of need to need to be aware of um, so whilst a company will make capital disposals and in theory make a capital gain they will pay corporation tax on that that gain so effectively that gain will get added to the sort of trading profits or, or, or the other profits of the company and taxed at corporation tax rates so that, so they're not subject to, to capital gains tax now what was announced by the Chancellor is that there is going to be a reform to the corporation tax uh, capital losses regime um, which will restrict the brought forward capital losses that can be offset against capital gains. Now this is going to apply from April 2020 so there's a little bit of time before this actually comes in. So how things work now from a, uh, from a, from a company capital gains perspective is that there's no restriction on the brought forward capital losses that can offset a, a capital gain that arises. 
Um, so you know any level of gain can be offset against um, any level of brought forward capital losses. Now, from April 2020, there's going to be a restriction such that only 50% of uh, the brought forward um, capital losses can be offset against a capital gain. So effectively, this will potentially increase the, the rate at which a company will pay corporation tax on the gains. Now, this brings um, the, the sort of capital gains uh, treatment for companies in line with other losses. Now, there was a reform back in April 2017, um, whereby there was this 50% um, sort of restriction on on losses against um, profits. So this kind of brings things into into line a little bit. So potentially it's going to going to um, increase the, the, the rate or, or the timing, should I say, at which you'll pay tax. Now, whilst there's that restriction, similar to the to the reforms to other corporation tax losses, there is going to be a de minimis level of £5 million um, before that restriction kicks in. So what this means is that companies can make, uh, make gains in a year up to £5 million and, and offset all of the brought forward losses up to that point, and only above that figure will there then be the 50% restriction. So again, this is um, the same as the, the other corporation tax losses rules that are, that are already in place and have been in place since April 2017. Um, so again, kind of no no real big surprises there from a tax perspective. Um, it, it means that the corporation tax loss rules are all aligned regardless of which losses we're talking about. So that covers off um, some of the, the, the tax changes applicable to individuals and um, to, to businesses. Now, what is probably worth noting here is that we've only been able to cover a, a sort of a relatively small proportion of the changes due to the, uh, the sort of number of changes and, in fact, the, the sort of breadth of the tax legislation currently in place. It's, 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 uh, it's a bit tricky, Chris, to, to sort of cover all of this off, uh, certainly within an hour. Of course. Um, so, so we'll, we'll sort of stop there. Now, what I think is probably worth doing here, Chris, is probably looking at the bigger picture of the budget and and you know what this means for for us as a country now we've obviously got um brexit on the horizon which was probably uh something that the the chancellor had in mind um and we've sort of seen in the in the press that potentially there there'll need to be an emergency budget in the event that there isn't a a deal struck with the eu um so from a sort of bigger picture what what do we think about the 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 budget okay so i've done a fair bit of research on some of this um, in terms of what what's really going on in terms of the big picture and what it might mean for us all as taxpayers moving forward and uh, you can find more of this on our blog. Uh, I think the first point is that um, it's very interesting and, and made by the journalist James Forsyth in The Spectator. He asked the question, did the budget represent a missed opportunity? Um, so what he highlights is that uh, obviously Brexit negotiations are at a heightened point um, and there's a, quite a lot of talk about no deal, no deal planning and he, he explains that no deal planning doesn't have to be just about borders and logistics um, and he sort of, it's really interesting, he says that Hammond could have actually set out what the UK would have looked like in the event of no deal as a tax jurisdiction and economy. He could have made it almost aspirational or created a vision for no deal. Um, and in doing this, he could have actually stated a desire or an aim to eliminate much of our enormous and very complex tax code, which I'll cover off in a minute. Um, so, for example, this could have included uh, an aspiration to eliminate tariffs on manufactured goods, um, maybe further reduce corporation tax, cuts to capital gains tax, uh, and enhancing, as we've mentioned earlier, further tax relief on business investment. So in the event of no deal, uh, an emergency budget would not be restrictive in terms of uh, the amount of money that taxpayers have to pay but would probably more likely be expansionary because obviously Brexit represents uncertainty to businesses at the moment. Uh, if he laid out a vision that might have given them more things to plan around. 
Do, do we think, though, Chris, with um, with the government's sort of position, if you like, with uh, you know following their last election and they they lost seats and they're sort of reliant on the the DUP to to, to sort of get things through and to an extent reliant on um, some of the the, the Labour uh, members of Parliament to, to push certain bills through. Is a sort of reduction in corporation tax and and what Jeremy Corbyn sometimes refers to as this tax haven. Um, you know, if, if Philip Hammond was to, to sort of suggest that in a budget, would that realistically get voted through, do we think? I think he would have simply um, had to say it would be an aspiration uh, post non-deal Brexit. Um, I don't think he would have actually been stating specific policies around it for, for this budget. Um, I think the point here is that um, basically the feeling is that the UK has lost out in the negotiations with the EU on over the issue of the Irish border. The EU have sort of said, well, that's your problem to solve. Um, it sounds like we then go to the table with some solutions and then they bat it back saying, no, that's not good enough or whatever along those lines. If the UK had stated this aspiration, what you effectively give the EU to think about is a very competitive potentially economy and tax jurisdiction right next to their shores uh, and it would make them think twice and it might potentially help wrestle back a bit of power and control over the negotiations to the British side. That is the point made by James Forsyth in The Spectator. And um, what about the, the, the tax code, Chris? Now, I've sort of seen um, some articles written um, in, in sort of certain publications that, um, you know, the, the tax code now has got, um, it, it sort of turned into a bit of a monster. And I, I, to an extent, I can sort of sympathise with some of that with, um, with the number of books now that I, I sort of sometimes have to sift through when, um, when sort of considering certain tax advice that we're given. Um, so do, do we sort of think something could have been done with that? Yes, I think very much so. Um, according to Dominic Frisby of Money Week, um, there are now 10 million words in the UK tax code. I'll repeat that, 10 million words in the UK tax code, um, which makes it something of a colossus. Uh, and apparently since 1997, the UK tax code has trebled in size there have been no instances of reducing it, even though we have tax simplification departments and, and, and the like. Um, but it, it simply seems that successive chances add more rules and then they're faced with having to make civil servants add additional rules to cover the holes in the original rules. Um, to give that a little bit of context, if you took... The Chilcot Report, you may remember the Chilcot Report, which was huge. That's 2.6 million words. Um, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, which is supposed to be an epic, huge book. That's 587,000 words. The Bible is 800,000 words. And the complete works of Shakespeare are 885,000 words. You add all of them up, they still come, to put them all together, add them all up, they still come to less than half of the UK tax code. So this creates big issues. Um, it's hugely problematic uh, because it becomes very difficult to understand much of the re regulation given there's so much of it. Uh, and it that makes it very difficult for people to uh, act in a manner where they're certain of being compliant. And furthermore, I should add that if you look at those words, compare the UK tax code with, say, that of Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, their tax code is less than 150,000 words. Okay, so there really is a case for simplification, for reducing it. Um, how can entrepreneurs and owner-managers scale up uh, their organisations, which, let's face it, is an absolute key driver of economic growth. Uh, when they've got all these tax matters occupying their time, money and attention. And, and furthermore, it must be incredibly difficult uh, for HMRC to implement this, this enormous book effectively. Um, so the, the costs of administering it are, have soared over the years. Uh, and it probably explains why so many people need so much help with their tax returns, because it's a potential minefield.
There are all sorts of uh, ideas out there. There was the, something called the 2020 Tax Commission. They suggested that you divide things up between labor and capital. So labor wage is about wages and salary. Capital is profits, dividends, capital gains and rents. And they suggested, and it was actually set up by the government, and they suggested doing away with taxing organizations because these are legal constructs that simply organize labor and capital. Uh, and therefore, you end up with only individuals who exist to pay tax. So you do away with taxing corporations and their profits, which can be easily manipulated. Instead, all taxation is based on cash flows when they're distributed to employees employees and investors. Now, again, it would have been very difficult given the coalition government, the state of the government to get this through. But again, aspirationally, this could have been mentioned as something uh, post-Brexit, a vision post-Brexit. So they're, they're, they're good points, Chris, and I'd, I'd certainly agree that the, um, the the tax legislation could certainly do with, um, with being reduced slightly. Um, now, looking to, um, to, to, to sort of the, the country as a whole, now the Chancellor announced um, prior to the budget, I think it was, that austerity is over, or the, the end of austerity. Um, now I sort of read, read in places, and um, I think it was it was sort of brought up by some of the uh, the correspondents during the budget that actually um, the the sort of whole idea of reducing the deficit is potentially sort of out the window because of these announcements. Now is, is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So the Chancellor obviously had tax receipts come in that were better than expected in in the projections. And he clearly used all of that up with the extra funding for the NHS and various other tax announcements. Um, but some simple issues remain. I say simple, they are significant, I should add, as well. So um, since the financial crisis about a decade ago, our level of national debt has doubled. So today, I believe it stands at about £1.8 trillion. That is an wow. enormous figure that's very difficult to imagine. Uh, and it seems that since we had the financial crisis and we've been operating with budget deficits, it, we've almost become used to this figure, almost uh, used to adding to it. It's almost a blasé thing, it feels now. Um, and then there's, there's something else very interesting as well that came out. The Inter International Monetary Fund, the IMF, IMF they did a, a bit of research, a survey on various economies. We were one of them. Uh, and they looked at our assets versus, so that's the government's assets, versus our long-term liabilities. Now, since privatisation, what you find is that the UK's, the government's assets have been going down. Meanwhile, because we've been running... Um, deficits and adding to our debt pile, our long-term liabilities have gone up. So now we have assets of £3 trillion and long-term liabilities of £5 trillion, which means as a country we have a negative net worth of £2 trillion. And our negative net worth has also doubled since the start of the financial crisis. Um, now, to pay down our debt and reduce the interest bill on that debt, which forms part of the budget and the spending review, um, will require the Chancellor to eliminate the budget deficits. So the amount that he um, borrows because we spend more than we take in tax receipts. Um, <clears throat> and also you have to factor in as well that we have a very large aging population at the top. So we're quite top heavy. And, a lot, and that's the baby boomer generation. And a lot of them are either just retired or coming into retirement. Now that will place further um, demand on the NHS and in particular social care, social services. So there's probably gonna have to be a lot more money uh, allocated to those things moving forward in the future. Um, if the Chancellor is talking about the end of austerity, that means he's talking about not cutting money to various services. So if that is the case, then to eliminate uh, the budget deficit going forward would suggest that there would probably have to be tax rises in the future. And uh, that's quite an interesting point, Chris, because um, 
you know, everything that I've read and, and sort of seen the Conservatives say is that they are very much a party for reducing tax and um, you know, keeping taxes low as far as possible. So um, if what you're saying is right and they're going to have to increase taxes at some point, that kind of might go against you know, a, lot of their, a lot of their pledges, if you like. Yeah, it, it, I think it goes a, a little bit against their traditional ethos um, as they were traditionally a low tax party. And I think there were various promises in the manifesto in the last election to hold taxes as they are and look to reduce them where possible but um, there does seem to be a bit of an ideological maybe shift in that regard Um, it'll be interesting to see what the tax take is like next year uh, and there is the spending review next year so the, the feeling is that some of the hard decisions lie ahead maybe the the can was kicked down the road a little bit we'll see but i think um given this big pronouncement of the end of austerity that would suggest things tax rises for the future um which means we've all got to expect to pay more in tax at some point soon on that bombshell i'd say that's a good place to end it thank you to tom biggs for joining me and providing his valuable insight to all things tax. Be sure to check the Weller's blog for more analysis of how the tax changes could impact on you. We'll be back soon with another interview. In the meantime, please do subscribe to Beyond the Numbers on your favourite podcast app. Do also get in touch with your feedback using the hashtag BeyondTheNumbers and you can tweet me at ThompsonCST and at Wellers SME. Beyond the Numbers is a Wellers production. Till next time, success is not final, failure is not fatal, it's the courage to continue that counts. <laughs>